You are listening to Pan Am, a podcast about Paris, the people who've lived here, the events that have taken place and the traces they've left behind. I'm Amber and today we are heading to the gallows of Montfaucon, or the fairest gallows that I ever saw. Well, at least in the words of 16th century travel writer Thomas Corrett. Next time, we will dive into the bloody consequences of one particular execution, but in this episode, we shall linger by its gloomy side. So come with me to the gibbet of Montfaucon, which, though thankfully no longer standing, has cast its shadow through the ages and left its mark on Paris. Colonel Fabien. Colonel Fabien. We're standing at the Place Colonel Fabien, where the 10th and the 19th arrondissement meet. Today it is an unremarkable roundabout. Uh, it's not far from the lovely Canal Saint-Martin, which is just down the road in one direction, and the Bouchemont Park, which is up the road in the other direction. Also of interest uh, is the curious communist headquarters, which from the outside looks like a giant sort of egg emerging from the ground, and my son used to call it the dinosaur egg. And you can actually see inside. They sometimes open it up to the public, but it's been in quite a lot of films. Um, I personally saw it in the film L'Ecume du Jour, which was a pretty unusual film, but quite fun to watch. Um, but if we had been standing here... On the 2nd of August, 1343, it would have been a rather different affair because it was on this spot, more or less, that we would have found the infamous gibbet of Montfaucon. Now, what is a gibbet exactly? That is a very good question. Well, it's like a gallows in that a gallows is a structure used to hang people. A gibbet can also do this, but it is also specifically used to then display their body after death for a period of time as a warning to others or to make an example of them. The gibbet de Montfaucon was infamous. It was built in the 13th century by Philip le Bel, our friend from a few episodes ago who was cursed by the Templars. It was the largest in Paris, but of course it wasn't in Paris at that time. Colonel Fabien would have been well outside the city proper. It stood on a small hill and you can see today that we're still on a hill all the better for you to be seen from afar. And what exactly would you have seen? Well, it was quite a huge structure made of upright posts which were linked together with beams and it was from these beams that the bodies would have been hung by chains. Now, I presume they were hung by chains rather than ropes as chains last longer. If a person was beheaded somewhere else, they were still able to be displayed. They'd have just been hung up by their armpits. And if they'd been burned, then they'd have gathered up what was left and put that in a little bag. And then that was displayed here. There was even occasions where an effigy stood in place for the victim. At the base of the structure, there was a sort of pit, which was used as a like a charnel house to collect the remains. So altogether, a rather gruesome affair. Bodies could sometimes be left to rot on the gallows for up to three years, depriving both family and the deceased of a proper burial at a time where such things meant a great deal. Not that anyone would want that to happen now. Um, and you would have also seen flocks of crows which gathered above the gibbet and other scavengers which gave it an even more 
gloomy feeling. Bodies used to have to be guarded from time to time. Now, this was sometimes to stop theft by the loved ones, of course, trying to recuperate the bodies in order to give them a proper burial. But there were also other thieves. So you had medical thieves hoping to steal the bodies um, and dissect them in the name of science. Um, People wanting to simply steal things from the bodies. And there were also uh, witches or those practising sorcery who came to this morbid place in order to find ingredients for some diabolical spell. So, you know, the hair from a hangman's head, apparently much in demand, as was the heart and other entrails. So, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Now, the procedure leading up to the hanging was very ritualised. If the condemned man were to be hung at Montfaucon, and I've read that in the Middle Ages it would have only been men, as hanging women was considered indecent, so they were buried alive, which is much more respectable. Anyway, what would have happened, they'd have been led from usually the Châtelet prison, their hands tied, accompanied by the executioner and a priest and possibly a few other people. They would walk along the Rue Saint-Denis to about a number 237, which today is the entrance to a covered passage, but used to be a convent, Les Filles de Dieu. And there they would receive bread and a glass of wine and some prayers would be said. And then they would continue to walk up to Montfacon, which is about a 25 minute walk. They would do this following behind a wooden cross and, uh, well, then you know the rest. You know exactly what's going to happen next. Interestingly, should during the execution the cord break, the condemned person would be pardoned. I suppose it was considered some sort of divine intervention. I've also read a number of sources that say should a woman at the foot of the gallows offer to marry the condemned man about to be hung, then he would also be freed, leading to lots of hilarious jokes about men preferring to be hung than marrying an ugly woman. I'm sure you can imagine the style. Now, although Montfaucon was not the only gibbet in Paris, it was by far the most well-known and the largest. It was used right up until 1629, so well over 300 years, although it was not dismantled until 1760, and I've even read as late as 1790. And despite the fact that it has now been well over 200 years since its complete removal, it has nonetheless left its mark on Parisians. As well as appearing in history books, the gibbet pops up in fiction and even pop culture. Gainsbourg, in his song Laissez-moi tranquille, even makes reference to the gibet de Montfaucon. Allez sans esclandre, mes chatons, allez vous faire pendre, allez donc ailleurs qu'à mon gilet. À quoi bon, je ne suis pas le gibet de mon faucon. Which sort of translates to uh, go hang yourself, go kittens, hang yourself elsewhere, other than off my jacket, I'm not the gibbet of Montfaucon. 
In literature, it of course lives on. It's mentioned in Dumas's La Reine Margot, as this is where Coligny was hung during the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. But I think you get the best idea of what it may have looked like from the final chapter of Victor Hugo's Notre Dame de Paris. Now, Hugo was famously against the death penalty, but I thought I'd just read you this last little chapter in which he imagines this terrible structure. Do, of course, skip ahead if you don't want any spoilers, but since it was published in 1830, I think it's pretty fair to read it out here. So here Hugo describes both a gibbet and, well, you'll see. During the night which followed the execution of La Esmeralda, the nightmen had detached her body from the gibbet and carried it, according to custom, to the cellar of Montfaucon. Montfaucon was, as Sauvel says, the most ancient and the most superb gibbet in the kingdom. Let the reader picture to himself crowning a limestone hillock, an oblong mass of masonry 15 feet in height, 30 wide, 40 long, with a gate, an external railing and a platform. On this platform, 16 enormous pillars of rough-hewn stone, 30 feet in height, arranged in a colonnade round three of the four sides of the mass which support them, bound together at their summits by heavy beams, whence hung chains at intervals. On all these chains, skeletons. Above all this, in the sky, a perpetual flock of crows. That was Montfaucon. At the end of the 15th century, the formidable gibbet, which dated from 1328, was already very much dilapidated. The beams were worm-eaten, the chains rusted, the pillars green with mould, the layers of hewn stone were all cracked at their joints, and grass was growing on that platform, which no feet touched. The monument made a horrible profile against the sky, especially at night, when there was a little moonlight on those white skulls, or when the breeze of evening brushed the chains and the skeletons and swayed all these in the darkness. The presence of this gibbet sufficed to render gloomy all the surrounding places. The mass of masonry which served as foundation to the odious edifice was hollow. A huge cellar had been constructed there, closed by an old iron grating, which was out of order, into which were cast not only the human remains which were taken from the chains of Montfaucon, but also the bodies of all the unfortunates executed on other permanent gibbets of Paris. To that deep charnel house, where so many human remains and so many crimes have rotted in company, many great ones of this world, many innocent people, have contributed their bones. From Engoron de Marigny, the first victim, and a just man to Admiral de Coligny, who was its last, and who was also a just man. I think that gives you an idea of what it looked like, just how massive it was, but also how sort of gloomy and terrifying and what a sort of impressionable, what a sort of stark um, figure it must have cast uh, on the horizon and, you know, in Parisians' minds. It's got some really great descriptions. I really like this idea of the grass growing on the platform that the feet never touch. That's so evocative. And then, you know, these sort of chains rattling and these skeletons swaying. And what was that? An odious edifice? I know it's a translation, but that is a great translation. I just want to read the end of the story of 
Notre Dame just because it's interesting. As for the mysterious disappearance of Quasimodo, this is all that we've been able to discover. About 18 months or two years after the events which terminate this story, when search was made in that cavern for the body of Olivier de Dame, who had been hanged two days previously, and to whom Charles VIII had granted the favour of being buried in Saint-Laurent, in better company, they found among all those hideous carcasses two skeletons, one of which held the other in its embrace. One of these skeletons, which was that of a woman, still had a few stripes of garments, which had been white, and around her neck was to be seen a string of beads with a little silk bag ornamented with green glass, which was open and empty. These objects were of so little value that the executioner had probably not cared for them. The other, which held this one in a close embrace, was the skeleton of a man. It was noticed that his spinal column was crooked, his head seated on his shoulder blades, and that one leg was shorter than the other. Moreover, there was no fracture of the vertebrae at the nape of the neck, and it was evident that he had not been hanged. Hence the man to whom it belonged had come hither and died there. When they tried to detach the skeleton, which he held in his embrace, he fell to dust. Such a great story. So, like I said, there is thankfully nothing left of the gibbet of Montfaucon. If you go to Colonel Fabian today, you won't see anything. There is a little plaque that talks about it. Um, although there were bones found at number 57 Rue de la Grande Jobelle, which is a road that goes from Colonel Fabian down to the Canal Saint-Martin, and those were bones thought to be dating from the gibbet and from the charnel house, so pretty gruesome. That's all we're going to dive into today. In the next episode, we're going to talk about one particular um, execution which took place here and the remarkable consequences that followed. So I hope you'd enjoyed this episode and um, I look forward to speaking to you soon. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs>